Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We are a collective of biblical scholars and theologians who try to read the Bible and uh, in a way that's mindful of theology and vice versa. And not every episode strikes that note exactly, but that's the, the big picture of, of what we're about here at OnScript, and we hope that that's a benefit for those of you who listen. Thanks um, especially to those of you who give regularly. If you'd like to give to OnScript, you can do so at onscript.study forward slash donate. We appreciate any contributions there, um, but most of all, just th- thanks for listening and and uh, engaging in the subjects that we're talking about here that we're all so passionate about. All right, enjoy the episode. Hello, Unscript listeners. This is Erin Heim coming to you from Wycliffe Hall, University of Oxford. And our guest today is Dr. Katie Marker, who is Teaching Fellow of Biblical Languages at the University of Otago in Dunedin, New Zealand. But today, Katie's actually here with me in Oxford to talk about her new book, Divine Regeneration and Ethnic Identity in First Peter, Mapping Metaphors of Family, Race, and Nation, which was published in the SNTS monograph series by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Katie, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to OnScript. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. So Katie, this book is a revision of your doctoral thesis. How did you come to be interested in New Testament studies? And um, I suppose, what, what drew you to First Peter in particular? Yeah, well, I ended up going to a Christian university, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I got there. So I was thinking about business or Spanish or all these different things. But because it was a Christian university, I had to do biblical studies. And so I took my first biblical studies class, and I was basically hooked and decided that's what I wanted to do. And then when I was um, kind of in a, in my later years, uh, well, my third and fourth year at university, I got interested in um, the theme of election and what does it mean to be elect and what does it mean for people who are not elect. And so that's how I got to be studying First Peter because First Peter actually has the highest concentration of election language in the New Testament. So if you want to know about election, First Peter is a really good place to look. So that's how I got into it. And then have, then have been, uh, the rest is history. Yeah. Great. And and for this book in particular, because it's not really about, I mean, it's a little about election, but it's not really about election. Um, what what drew you to this topic of divine regeneration and ethnic identity? I guess like a lot of PhDs, I wanted to do First Peter, but then I spent a long time stumbling around, kind of looking for topics, following dead ends. And so finally, this topic kind of emerged from the different dead ends that I had, you know, gone down and then come back from because I was really influenced by the work of David Horrell um, and his work on what it means for Christians to be an ethnic group, which is based on First Peter. And so I started looking at the metaphor of divine regeneration, and that led to all these other different bits and pieces about Christians as young children and nursing infants. And so the project then kind of really took root then, and I was able to kind of explore each one of those as chapters in the book. And you use metaphor theory um, as this analytical tool that undergirds or you know, guides exegesis in First Peter. Can you just can you give us an elevator pitch for why metaphor theory is useful um, and what it, and I suppose what it is for those who might not be as familiar with that set of tools? Absolutely. So I actually came to metaphor almost by accident um, because a lot of people that have worked on First Peter have kind of done bits and pieces with metaphor, and there's been some books on First Peter and metaphor as well. So the people I were reading were talking a lot about metaphor, and then. I realized that it's actually really useful. It gives you a set of terminology and vocabulary and way of kind of analyzing language that I just found very helpful. And I started using metaphor, I think, towards the end of my PhD work. And so I got to the point where the PhD was ready to be submitted as a doctoral thesis. And my work on metaphor is one of the big ways that the the published book is is an improvement over the thesis. So um, in the intervening years between when I finished the P, uh, PhD and when I published it, I've done a lot more research on metaphor, really developing that. Um, so metaphor theory um, basically says, well, there's you know different kinds of language and you have a tenor and vehicle or um, different terms, but you have one thing that's trying to describe something else. And somehow the brain is actually able to process this instantaneously. And 
you can communicate a huge amount of information in a metaphor. And for a long time, I think metaphor was kind of um, poo-pooed by um, people coming out of uh, streams of thought from logical positivism as being kind of a, a lesser form of language than prosaic speech. But there's been a real pushback on that recently to say that actually metaphor is very effective at communicating things that can't be said in any other way or to communicate things that are brand new and the language and the vocabulary hasn't really been developed yet. So I just found all of that really helpful um, in my analysis of First Peter. There's a great moment in John Locke's sort of invective against metaphor where he uses, I think, like six or seven metaphors to talk about how bad metaphor is. It's, he talks about it beclouding the senses and obscuring. And uh, it's just, I, I'm like, all, all of this is metaphor. Do you understand? Anyway, um, yeah, I agree because I've used a lot of metaphor in my own, my own research. Um, how do you think metaphor relates to literal speech, because there's a chapter in your book where you play with this, you know, this is metaphor, like Peter's using this metaphorically, and actually the Qumran community is using it literally. So how, what do you mean by literal? What do you mean by metaphor? And how can we tell the difference? That's a fantastic question. One of the contributions that I hope that my book makes to this discussion is to draw in a lot of work that's been done by metaphor theorists into biblical studies. So biblical scholars don't have to reinvent the wheel if this has been done by people that do metaphor. And so there's a group of scholars um, called the Progly Jazz Group, which is a really funny name, but I think they took the first letters of their different names and they came up with this funny name. And they came up with what they call the metaphor identification principle. And the way that it works is you look at a term and then you look it up in the dictionary and you identify kind of the oldest, most concrete, most basic term, meaning of the term. And then if the way that that word is used in other languages is different than you're looking at a metaphor. So that's kind of a simplified version of it. But if you say Christians are nursing infants, then a nursing infant is literally a baby, right? That's drinking, that's drinking milk and nursing, right? And if Christians aren't that definition, then that you're looking at a metaphor here. So the goal of that is to have something that's an objective way of identifying metaphorical parts of speech. Because one of the problems, especially in First Peter, is that there's lots of metaphors and everybody thinks the metaphors are self-evident. But then when you compare notes with other scholars, things that they think are self-evidently metaphors are not self-evidently metaphors to other people. So it's nice to have at least something that's trying to be objective and making transparent how people are deriving what's metaphorical and what's not. But what I think is really interesting is that there are some blurry lines, even if we use this really objective way of speaking. So when we say that Jesus is the Lamb of God we must be speaking in some other way that's not prosaic, right? Because Jesus isn't literally a lamb. But when we say that Jesus is the lamb of God, we are communicating some type of fundamental theological truth that can't just be boiled down into prosaic assertions. But what you call that type of language, I think we haven't really, um, I, feel, I feel like we're still working our way to kind of identify language that fully describes what type of speech that is. Because I still think that in the minds of a lot of people to say that that's just metaphorical really diminishes it. But I'd want to say that this is metaphorical in some kind of really full sense, but we haven't really got a good term for that yet. Well, and perhaps it will take, you know, a full kind of, I don't know, disavowal of the the notion of literal speech as somehow more true or more. Um, and I think, I think that's really a product of the enlightenment. I'm not sure if we're I'm not sure if we're there yet because we want to say that we speak truly, but also that we speak <laughs> metaphorically. I'm, I'm so with you on that. Um, how about ethnic identity? What, what do you mean by ethnic identity? And maybe more importantly, what do you think, um, how do you think ancient peoples thought about ethnic identity in you know, the first century um, Greco-Roman empire? Hmm. I'm really glad that you asked. And I actually think that that follows on very nicely from the discussion about metaphor, because the whole discussion of ethnicity and race kind of comes out of this kind of Darwinian evolution kind of a very racist history about dividing people into different types of groups based mm -hmm. on facial and physical features. And, you know, in the last hundred years, people have recognized that this is just inherently racist and that ethnicity isn't based in biology. It's based in all of these other things, shared history, shared language, shared culture, religion in some cases. And that in many ways, religion, uh, sorry, ethnicity itself is actually in some ways a social construct. It's not something that's based in physical reality. It's based in all of these other social realities. But what's interesting is that that actually in some ways moves you in the direction of metaphor anyway, because you're talking about something that's not 
quote unquote, physically real, but is real in these other ways. So if you talk about different types of ethnic identity um, being sort of not physically real, but socially real, then they become the kind of thing that's almost interchangeable, but not quite with Christian identity. So if you have somebody who's American or Polish or indigenous or coming from these other cultural groups, but then also a Christian, being a Christian doesn't erase those types of ethnic groups. So they're not completely interchangeable, but they're not as different as some scholars like to think where Christianity just can't be ethnic. They're actually, I think, a lot more overlapping um, than has been recognized by, by many people. Hmm, that's really interesting. And so then you go on to tease out these different metaphors and how they fit with divine regeneration and ethnic identity. Um, can you just can you tell us what those metaphors are that you're looking at and maybe give us just kind of a brief summary of how they fit within this wider project? Hmm. So David Horrell um, really laid a lot of the foundation for the work that I do because he identified that in First Peter 2, 9 and 10, Christians are described as an ethnos, a genos, and a laos. So they're described as a people, and actually they're using ethnic terms. It might be helpful to define those for people who might not speak Greek. <laughs> oh, yes. So ethnos is the word that we get ethnicity from, and it kind of means close to what our word for ethnicity means. Um, genos also, genos and laos actually are very overlapping, but they they mean kind of relationship or family or corporate groups that are something like people or nation or, or things like that. It's, it's a little bit tricky going from Greek to English because there's not a good word in Greek that means kind of national identity or that doesn't quite map over into what we mean by national identity. But sometimes these terms are used that way. They're also used to describe kind of animal groups and, and different types of things like that as well. So David Horrell identified how Christians are, are described as being an ethnic group in First Peter. And so then my research kind of answers the question of what does it mean to be an ethnic group? Okay. And in the ancient world, just like in the modern world today, usually for the vast majority of people, you're born into an ethnic group and then you're socialized as well. So birth is usually the first stage, but is usually insufficient. Usually it's birth plus socialization. So you're raised in a culture with norms and values and festivals and cultural practices. And together the birth plus the socialization is what kind of gives you this identity. And so what I identified in First Peter is that the author of First Peter is giving that whole set of networks to believers through Christ. So the beginning of the letter describes how Christians are divinely regenerated through God the Father. So they're begotten. And then it even specifies with imperishable seed. Um, and then they become nursing infants that are that are to crave the pure spiritual milk of the word. And then they become like young children. Right. And, and so you're seeing this chronological progression of they're having this new identity, they're grown, they're formed. And then that culminates in them being this new people of God. So each chapter in the book looks at one of those individual metaphors. And then at the end, I look at how they all link together as part of this coherent identity formation. But what I think, I think that there's a couple of um, contributions that I'd like to make to kind of the way that the discourse is done. And and, and they have to do with kind of paying attention specifically to the metaphors. So when you look at God as father, this is a paternal image, right? Because I think that in English, we like to say born again, which is fine, but it's a maternal image. So just paying attention to the difference between an image based on fatherhood and an image based on motherhood. So in the beginning, it's fatherhood. But the interesting thing in First Peter is that you do get maternal images. It just comes later with this idea of nursing mothers and breastfeeding. And so that was actually a really fun chapter to write, was to look at kind of breastfeeding in the ancient world and how it's more than just nutrition, that there actually is an ethnic component to this. And that feeding from a certain woman is actually a way of marking that person as belonging to an ethnic group. So one of the things I wanted to do in the book is to look at these metaphors, but to situate them within their historic, religious, and cultural context within ancient Judaism and early Christianity, and to really kind of try to give a robust analysis of them kind of in their own time and place. I want to go back to something you said that I find really interesting. Um, I mean, it, it's really interesting just reading in the book, but um, having now met you, Katie, I, I have a, a question about culture um, being something that you're born into and then socialized into. Because you are a woman of the world. You are from the United States. United States. Yep. Mm -hmm. Maryland. Maryland. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, and then you did your doctoral work in 
the UK, the UK yeah. and now you teach in New Zealand. You've just had a child there. So what do you think it means for, um, for you to be born one place and then raising a child into another place where she is, you know, being born into a culture and socialized into a culture that's not your culture? How, do you, how, does, how does your research help you to think about that? It's funny because it feels like a double-edged sword. On the one hand, I feel like it clarifies a lot of things. And then on the other hand, it suddenly opens up all these other questions that make me more confused kind of than I was before. <laughs> um, because on the one hand, I think when you look at ethnicity, especially ancient ethnicity in Second Temple Judaism and the Second Sophistic in the kind of the Greek world, is you see that actually ethnicity is a much more complex beast than we tend to think. We tend to think, well, either somebody's Greek or they're Roman or they're Jewish. And these are all kind of isolated individual categories. But in reality, these are categories that overlap all the time. So if you look at somebody like Philo, he's, he's Greek, he's Alexander, he's living, living in Alexandria. So he's kind of got an Egyptian part of that. He's Jewish. And then he's also got a lot of aspects of him that are very Roman. And so he kind of has all of these categories that exist in him simultaneously. Um, and I think that that's true in the ancient world, but that's also true in our world today, that there's nobody, there, there's, there's most people, a lot of people in, in Western society now kind of have very complex identities where you do have bits and pieces from all over the place. Um, and so looking at identity in the ancient world actually kind of says, well, actually, this isn't some new thing that's just happening to people now that people have had complex identities probably for a very long time. Mm. So that's, that was kind of helpful, but then it also kind of brings up questions about, well, how do you actually describe what it means? Like, what is my identity now? And, and I think that one of the things that's, that I've kind of been interested in now is that there's a big movement in biblical studies to look at contextual theology. Hmm. And I've got, I think that's really interesting and, and a really kind of happening place in scholarship, but it also raises questions about how contextual theology that's done in one place can be used and interpreted by people who are from a completely different culture and what they share in common and the ways that they're different. And how does this movement towards contextual theology kind of enrich people from very different walks of life? And what does it mean to kind of own that theology or and share it? And there's a lot of questions there that I find really interesting. Hmm. I think it's interesting how like our, our personal histories often help clarify, um, clarify research questions. Um, that's certainly been true in my life. And at the same time, I'm so with you that often like it clarifies the research question, but then it raises all sorts of existential questions about like, who I am, and I think maybe in particular who my children are going to be um, as as third culture kids and what that means. But actually, as you say, it's been going on for a long time. So it's, um, it's really interesting in the New Zealand context um, because I'm an Anglican and the, new, the Anglican church in New Zealand has a really interesting character because it's structured as a three tikanga church. And tikanga uh, means basically like cultural streams or identity. Hmm. And so there's tikanga Maori, which is the kind of the indigenous stream. There's Tikanga Pakiha. Pakiha now kind of means European settler, kind of that type of thing. And then there's um, Tikanga Pacifica, which is the Pacific groups. And the idea is that these are all kind of equal, mutually supporting, but kind of preserving, preserving of their own distinct identity and culture. And so in New Zealand, we're trying to kind of recognize the cultural distinctiveness of each of these groups within the unifying body of Christ. Mm. And so I think that that's a really interesting question then to bring to the question of what it means to have a Christian ethnic identity. So you have people who are Maori, Pacific, Pakiha, or other categories that aren't part of those three or that, you know, and then somehow we're all part of the same ethnic identity in Christ. And that maybe the idea of being kind of one ethnic group in Christ is a way of understanding our unity while preserving this diversity. Hmm. That is, that's really helpful. Um, let's get into the chapters themselves. You give, uh, I think a pretty, it's a pretty comprehensive overview. It's a pretty long chapter, uh, about the language of divine regeneration or divine generation, um, which is probably important to mention. <laughs> um, so divine regeneration in first Peter and divine generation and other second temple texts. So I think first, why are you convinced that the language of divine, um, regeneration in first Peter isn't borrowing from pagan um mystery cults because that obviously was like a big thing not so much recently but um probably worth worth uh starting there and then uh second you you do a lot with um comparative uh textual studies in second temple judaism so what how does this language compare to what we find in those other um jewish texts starting in the old testament and going through the second temple period yeah so the comparison with mystery cults 
was definitely more fashionable about a hundred years ago or a little bit longer ago than that. Um, but I think that while people looked at it and did see some similarities, I don't think that the language in first Peter is coming from there. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the evidence that we have for the mystery cults is not particularly good. And it's also a little bit later. So if you're looking for something, I mean, there is a, there is a, there is a reason there's, it's good to investigate that, but I, I don't think the evidence is early and I don't think it's particularly strong either. And then if you actually look at the evidence that you do have, um, it tends to be maternal, right? So it's a, it is actually images of being born. And in First Peter, we have a very dominant paternal image about being begotten. So this is where I think if you're just doing it in English, you can think that they match up really nicely. But if you're looking at them in the original languages, you can actually see that they're a bit more different in their structure than it appears at first sight. And to complement that, on the Jewish side, one of the reasons that I kind of went into that and probably too much detail, is to show that there's actually a lot of this language going around a little bit in the Hebrew Bible, but a lot more in Second Temple Judaism and some Jewish texts that kind of give more of a background to this for early Christianity. And so if you're looking at that, when you have Jew, Jew, this, um, this language within Judaism, it um, means that you have texts that are closer in time and in content to what's in First Peter. So for me, you know, the odds of probability are that this is more more accurately located with within Second Temple Judaism, and so you you talk about um, divine generation in the in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible texts. Um, can you describe how it shifts and changes um, from what we see in sort of early texts? Like, I mean, you talk kind of at length about Second Samuel and um, maybe Psalm two. If I'm, I might be conflating that with something else. <laughs> um, but and then what? How it morphs and um, develops into the Second Temple period. Absolutely. And so the interesting thing there is that the language of divine regeneration seems to be a subset of the language of God as father in the Hebrew Bible and Judaism. So it really kind of follows the same trajectories of God as father. And in the Hebrew Bible and Second Temple Judaism, you really have three movements. So in its earliest movement, God as father of Israel as a nation. So the language is very national. So you get things like Exodus, like out of, out of Israel, I've called my son, and he's talking about the nation of Israel. And then later during the monarchies, you get God being the father of the king. So this is where the enthronement psalms come in, right? This day I have begotten you, talking about God's relationship with the king. And then towards the later um, the later biblical books and kind of moving into second temple period, you get God as father of individuals, right? And it's interesting that in the Hebrew Bible, God actually isn't usually described as father of individuals who are not kings. But you do get a lot more of that in the Pseudepigrapha and in the Apocrypha. And then in Christianity, this becomes huge, right? God is the father of any person that becomes a believer. So in First Peter, you have the fatherhood of God being a major theme. And so I see it as kind of absorbing and kind of taking that richness of that trajectory, then bring that into early Christianity and specifically the the language of God as Father in First Peter, and what's the distinction between divine regeneration versus divine um, generation, and how do you see that language of divine regeneration in particular working in First Peter? One of the things I examined in my research is two discrete bodies of evidence. There's the evidence about God generating people or things or nations or the world or whatever, and then there's evidence of the way that the language of de- regeneration was used about things being rebegotten and being regenerated after floods or apocalypses or whatever. And both of those bodies of evidence have a lot of attestation, but you don't have language about God regenerating things in Second Temple Judaism. So what that chapter is trying to say is the language of First Peter is kind of innovative because it's taking God as the subject and it's using language that exists in these other philosophical and theological contexts, but it's applying that to God. So God regenerating human beings. So I don't think it's a huge leap to say that this was all kind of floating around in the culture and the air and what people were thinking and writing, but first Peter does express it in a new way. Hmm. And what do you think, why do you think he chooses the language of regeneration over the language of generation? The author is trying to draw a contrast between believers' lives before they become Christians and their lives afterwards. So he actually uses the term inherited from your forefathers. There's a term for this in Greek. And he actually says that you've now left this kind of sinful way that leads to death that's inherited from your forefathers 
that kind of ends in death and is destructive. And now you've got this new identity that's based on life, that's based on this union and identity with Christ. So he's contrasting their, their kind of their physical, physical, quote unquote, physical identity. The language there is not really appropriate. We can quibble about that, but he's, he's contrasting their kind of birth identity with this new identity that they have in Christ. So they've already been born once or regenerated once. And now this is their new identity that comes in Christ. Hmm. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I could ask you just the same set of questions that I've just asked you about, um, you know, the, the regeneration language about the chapter that you have on seed, because it feeds very much into this, um, this chapter on, uh, or your, your discussion of seed metaphor. So, uh, why is seed metaphorical? I suppose we should start there. Um, and, and how do you think, uh, first Peter is using this language versus, uh, this notion of seed or holy seed in other Jewish texts? So seed has to be metaphorical because it's not literal. So that's kind of an easy way to kind of just identify that. So we're talking about something that's metaphorical. And I think that there's an influence here of stoicism and kind of the um, the idea of this, the logical seed or the, the kind of the seed of the word in stoicism, where kind of the universe is permeated with this kind of logos that kind of informs all logos as part of this divine logos within stoicism. And so I think that this language exists kind of in the philosophical world and the philosophical tradition. And somebody like Philo, for example, is really influenced by this because he kind of wants to kind of Judaize a lot of the current philosophical themes. And so he has a lot of language about divine seed in somewhat shocking detail. And so I think that the author of First Peter had to have been very highly educated to have been aware of these kind of philosophical traditions, because it does seem that it's in the same vein as some of the stuff that Philo is doing, but kind of in a very specifically Christian way. I was thinking more of, of, of other Jewish texts that use this language of seed other than Philo, because you, you make this distinction in this chapter, and I thought this was really interesting, uh, about um, the holy seed of Israel making them ontologically distinct or different um, how do you think is is First Peter picking up on that, or are, is he is the um, author trying to do something slightly slightly different than that, or maybe I've not understood that correctly? Mm. So this is where one of my personal hobby horses kind of comes into play because I really believe that a robust understanding of Second Temple Judaism is essential for New Testament studies, and I'm starting to feel that a robust understanding of um, the Second Sophistic and the Greco-Roman world is equally as important. But that's kind of a, a new mm. area that I'm getting into now, but. When you study Second Temple Judaism, one of the first things that you realize is that Judaism is not monolithic. There's not one Jewish view of anything, either now or in the past. And that Judaism had this diverse array of expressions and beliefs. And so when you ask, well, what is the Jewish view of something? It's not just a one way. There's not just one right answer. There could be, you know, five or 10 different answers, depending mm. on which stream of Judaism you're looking at. Because you have people like Philo, who's very cultural, very worldly, and then, you know, embracing all of whatever the current theme, whatever the, whatever is popular and, and, um, you know, their philosophical trends. But then you've got people that are in like the Qumran community or the Essenes kind of extremely conservative movements. And you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and they're all kind of a bit different in their, their expressions and their beliefs. So when you're looking at, um, kind of Jewish perspectives on something, you have to say, well, which kind of, which one of these kind of flavors of Judaism is kind of seems to be kind of correlating with what you're getting kind of in a particular um, expression of Christianity. And what I found to be really interesting is that the language and the theology of first Peter actually seems to correlate with what you're getting in texts like the book of Jubilees. And so Jubilees actually does, the author of Jubilees believes that Jews are kind of ontologically different, that somehow they're a different kind of person than other people. And this is why they have to marry other Jews because they are a holy people. And if they marry people who are non-Jews, then this holy seed becomes kind of corrupted and defiled. And this has to be protected. And so Jubilees does this in a number of ways. Um, it kind of fills in gaps and genealogies to kind of clarify how all the right people are marrying all the right people. Um, and it also has a very um, elaborate theology of, of holy seed and holy nation. And what I found really interesting is that the author of 1 Peter seems to have that same that same theology, but in a way that's not as exclusive as Jubilees. So in Jubilees, you have to be born a Jew. There is no conversion. So other strands of Judaism, conversion is possible and people can intermarry and it's not a problem. In Jubilees, it's absolutely a problem. There's no conversion. You're either born Jewish or you're not. And First Peter seems to have this idea that Christians are 
a different type of people that once you become Christian, you become a holy person, but it doesn't have that same type of exclusivity that you have in Jubilees. So anybody can become a Christian, right? So once you convert to Christianity, you, you become part of this holy group and you can have this priestly identity, which was also very exclusive within Judaism, right? And you have suddenly all these attributes and appellations that were not kind of available to kind of Gentile people that are now kind of being applied to Christians. So, but you see that as distinct from like Joseph and Asenath and Asenath's conversion. Like she, so Asenath's not undergoing some ontological change. So is, is that, is that what you're after? Well, Jubilees would say that Asenath can't become Jewish because it wouldn't acknowledge that conversion is a possibility. So the type of change that Azeneth has is the type of change that Christians have when they convert to Christianity, according to First Peter. But the author of Jubilees wouldn't have recognized Azeneth's conversion as possible. So they're all kind of talking about things that are very similar. Um, sure, but they're they're they kind of they nuance them differently. So Azeneth kind of seems to she's she's a pagan Egyptian Egyptian person, is the daughter of a pagan priest, but she converts to Judaism and she marries a Jew, and her children are part of Judaism. So intermarriage and conversion seem to be accepted in Joseph and Asenath, but they're not in Jubilees. But do you think that the author of Joseph and Asenath thinks of Asenath undergoing an ontological change the way that Christians do in First Peter, or is it something else? He probably does, because he has a really elaborate discussion about how she basically has all of these markers of identity that she dismisses and she disowns, and then mm. she enters this new phase of identity when she falls in love with and marries Joseph. So yeah, I think I think that she does. So the outcome I think is similar, but hmm. it's recognizing that she's joining a group that's holy, but the boundaries, I guess the access to that group are a lot more porous than they are for the author of Jubilees. Mm. Mm. And but maybe not quite as porous as the author of First Peter? No. Well, I guess both for both categories it's it's kind of a conversion experience. And so in First Peter it's open to anyone. I guess theoretically in Joseph and Azenith, anyone could convert to Judaism, but it's a romance and it's focusing on her marrying sure. Joseph. So it's not really interested, I think, in, in that's, that yeah, question. Because I, I, I find that really interesting too, because it does seem to me the author of First Peter is interested in, like in some sense, he's interested in the in the intense resocialization, but it's not quite, it's not quite ethnic resocialization into an ethnic people of Israel, the way that Asenath... Absolutely. So Asenath actually becomes, for all intents and purposes, she becomes Jewish. Like for everything that it means to be Jewish, that now applies to her. In 1 Peter, one of the really weird things is that it doesn't try to apply all the markers of Judaism as we sort of know it to Christians. So for example, it doesn't say about what they should eat. It doesn't give them distinctive food laws. It doesn't give them sort of regulations about educating their children or who they should marry or all of these things that we normally think of as social indicators for marking ethnicity, it actually has very little of that, which Mm -hmm. is really weird because if you were going to replace an identity and put in a new one, you'd want these practical boundaries. You know, what are the festivals that you keep and who are the people that you should eat with and who are the people you should marry? Mm -hmm. And first Peter, interestingly, really doesn't do very much of that. So the categories, like I said, they, they overlap, but they're not kind of interchangeable. So what happens to Azenith is not quite what happens to First Peter kind of on the ground in quite the same way. It's, it's kind of hard to like articulate that, but there is, a, there is a distinction there. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, let's change pace for a second, and we're going to do a speed round. Ready for a speed round? Rules for the speed round are just that you answer uh, quickly, and you don't have to defend your answer, and I probably won't press you on it, but I reserve the right to because it's my game, and I control it. So there you are. Um, so here we go. Are you a dog person or a cat person? Dog. Give us a phrase that is quintessentially Kiwi. She'll be all right. (laughs) (laughs) She'll be all right. Or just she'll be right. She'll be right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what book in biblical studies has had the most influence on you? First Peter. Oh, how about what scholarly book? Ooh, what scholarly book? Uh, probably Richard Bauckham's The Theology of the Book of Revelation. Oh, I love that book. All right. What's a trend in society that scares you? People not listening to each other. Like people having, basically I'd say dualism, like everything being either black and white, good or evil. Mm. People being labeled as one thing and then everything being divided into these categories. Mm. Favorite novel? 
Ooh, the Hobbit. Oh, and you're in the right place. Uh, what's one thing you wish all of your students knew? That a lot of biblical studies comes down to hermeneutics and the questions that you ask of a text determine the answer that you get. Hmm. And finally, why is Australia inferior to New Zealand? <laughs> oh, gosh. Hmm. Not enough rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and all the dangerous animals, I think. No. <laughs> all right. Um, let's jump back into the, the chapter. I want to talk about this the, uh, chapter you have on milk metaphors because I, I as I was reading it, I'm, I, I, I sense my, I'm, she's really enjoying writing this. Like, this is a fun chapter. So let's spend some time talking about this. Um, what does breast, breast milk have to do with kinship formation or ethnic formation? You're absolutely right. This was a totally fun chapter to write. This is where I felt like, I was actually really doing kind of some really new stuff. So with other stuff, I was felt like I was kind of maybe doing some stuff where I was examining evidence that people had looked at and trying to put puzzle pieces together in a different way. With this chapter, I felt like I was like inventing new puzzle pieces and it was just really, really cool. Um, but I think that in the Western world, we think about breast milk just as being about nutrition. And in the ancient world, they actually believed a lot more than just nutrition for breast milk. It actually was a way of symbolizing values and membership in society and all of these other kind of social constructs actually were using kind of breast milk to kind of symbolize different things. And what's interesting is that that occurs in the Hebrew Bible a little bit, but it becomes even more dominant and more obvious in Second Temple Jewish literature. So an example here would be how in the Second Temple Jewish kind of literature, you get expansions on the Bible, rewritten Bible genre. And so there's a story about how Moses um, is obviously found by an Egyptian princess and he's raised by her. And in Second Temple Jewish literature, this is expanded where um, Tutmosis, this, the princess is given a name, um, tries to have the baby nursed by Egyptian wet nurses. And the baby Moses, won't he won't latch to any of these Egyptian wet nurses. And finally, then Miriam says, oh, well, the reason is because he's Hebrew and he'll only drink milk from a Hebrew wet nurse. And that's why she has to find a Hebrew wet nurse. So it kind of fills in the gap and, and it expands the story. And one of the reasons that the author does that is he's trying to say that the breast milk of these Egyptian women is symbolizing their culture and their values. And the fact that Moses doesn't accept this identifies him as being a Hebrew and being kind of maintaining his Jewish identity, even though he's raised in an Egyptian household. And there's actually several other stories about biblical characters like this, and that it kind of expand this theme of kind of breast milk as a kinship substance identifier in really, in really fun ways. And so what you then get in First Peter is that this metaphor of breast milk is then applied to Christian believers who have to crave the pure spiritual milk of the word. Um, so it's taking all these cultural values that exist in Second Temple Judaism and the Greco-Roman world and then kind of making them metaphorical to apply to Christians in a really cool way. Hmm. You seem really concerned in that chapter uh, to say that breastfeeding metaphors that are predicated of God don't imply that God is female. Can you say more about that? So it's important to kind of have a good grounding, I think, in ancient languages here to actually look at the text in ancient languages, because languages like Hebrew do mark gender. And so in the Hebrew Bible, God is always marked as male and gen uh, male kind of in grammatical terms. Even when feminine metaphors are applied to God, he's still grammatically male. Um, and this, I think, is carried on in Greek, kind of in the New Testament, too, where you still have God being grammatically male and identified by terms as father and these types of things. But that doesn't mean that you can't use feminine language, metaphor, and thought to apply to a male subject. Um, so in First Peter, you have this imagery of kind of divine breastfeeding, but it's being used of God who's only been identified as father. So it's just maintaining kind of the the language of the text there to say that God isn't identified as mother. He is identified as father, but a father that kind of has maternal qualities. Does that have theological implications or is it just an attempt to describe what's going on in the text? In the book, I think I tried to stick to just a description of what's there, but I do think there are clear theological implications of this that are worth drawing out. And I think the Christian tradition has always maintained that God in himself doesn't have gender. And so that's kind of almost a human category about how God reveals himself in ways that we understand and that in the text that we have in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, he kind of identifies himself as father, but that's not necessarily 
how he exists in his ontological being, that he's kind of genderless in his ontological being. But that seemed to be moving more into kind of a systematics direction. So I just <laughs> wanted to stay, I think, at the textual level. Yeah. But there's no reason why we can't think of God in maternal terms in ways. And I think that that's kind of consistent with mainstream Christian tradition. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, could we say like, is father also metaphorical in some sense? I think in some sense too. And this is where I think theology kind of makes a complicating factor when you're talking about metaphors, because in some ways it must be metaphorical because God isn't a biological father who begets biological children. So if we apply the metaphor identification procedure, we have to say this is a metaphor but how is it being used and what's being communicated? And somehow it's communicating truth to us about who God is. Um, that's not the same as prosaic speech exactly. But the fact that we have theological truth about who God is and how he reveals himself, I think makes that question a little bit more complicated than when we're talking about other kinds of metaphors. Yeah. Well, and it probably leads us back to this whole notion of speaking truly when we're speaking metaphorically and we get hung up about that really quickly. Um, from breast milk, you move on to this language of household um, and temple. Um, so how do these link together? Um, seed, breast milk, temple. How do we how do we continue in this in this frame of thought with First Peter? So from the image of believers as nursing children and breast milk, we kind of move into them being formed into a house. So I see that as an image of growth because a nursing infant is a growing infant, somebody that's growing and developing. And then in First Peter 2, 4, First uh, Peter 2, 4 to 10, it, we really kind of get this culmination of all of these corporate languages of house, temple, priesthood, ethnicity, corporate, corporate identity. Um, and so I see that as kind of the culmination then of this birth and socialization. And suddenly all these categories that would have excluded kind of Gentile people or even Jewish people who were women or for, were deformed or different things can suddenly all have a priestly identity and they're all part of this holy nation. So I just see the author first Peter just laying on all these different, he's almost just grabbing everything he can think of and just piling it on um, in this really kind of all these rich multi multi levels of, of identity there. He just, it just, it's almost like an overload. He just packs it in into a really tight space. And you spent a long time in that chapter um, comparing the language in first Peter to the language of Qumran. So what similarities do you see there and how they're using this temple language? And then where are the important distinctions? It's fascinating because they're using very similar language. And in some cases, they're even using the same biblical texts, notably from Isaiah, Isaiah 8, Isaiah 28, um, to describe believers as being a corporate temple. Now, in First Peter, I think the author does intend this metaphorically, and I think he intends his recipients to understand this as a metaphor. So when he says, you're a spiritual house, you know, you're priesthood and a holy temple, he knows that they're going to just understand this as kind of a metaphor. But at Qumran, this is where I think we don't kind of have the terminology to describe this. They really do believe that they are an embodiment of the temple as a temporary kind of incarnation of temple that's in between kind of the defilement of the Jerusalem temple. And they have to maintain this identity until the eschaton when God will come and set everything right again and rebuild kind of a temple that's undefiled. So at Qumran, there's somehow, there's some type of ontology there that is, that has a physical reality that determines the way that they eat, that governs their leadership structure, that governs all of these very practical aspects of their daily life, because they have to maintain this, physical sanctity of themselves as temple. That's a very different expression than how those ideas actually play out in first Peter, where, where there doesn't seem to be a concern for that type of level of, of existence. Is it possible that that distinction is one formed by the, um, you know, the very present rejection of the Jerusalem temple um, versus perhaps this Gentile for, I mean, the, maybe the temple doesn't loom quite as large in the minds of this audience. Like they're not, they're not staring at this particular temple that they have to reject. Um, do you think there's anything in that, that there's, that the situatedness of each of the sets of metaphor or not metaphor um, is just as much informed by their social context as it is by like theological concerns? Absolutely. So I think that the Qumran community were looking at what they believed of as a defiled temple that they had to somehow replace. And so that kind of motivated a lot of what they were doing versus Christians. That was never a question that they felt they needed to answer. They didn't have to replace a defiled temple for, you know, whatever reason. And, and this is where the 
the dating of first Peter, I guess might play a more dominant yeah. role too, because if the temple is destroyed in 70, then if first Peter is written earlier than 70, then the temple is a viable alternative mm. that, or, or not, not an alternative. It's, it's somewhere that Jewish Christians could actually go and make sacrifices if they wanted to versus after 70, there's no temple anyway. And so it's not like Christians being a spiritual temple has to somehow compete or be an alternative to a physical temple, mm. especially for Christians who are in Asia minor, who were geographically very displaced from the temple anyway. Well, and not ethnically Jewish, perhaps. Mm. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. That, I, I thought that was a really interesting, interesting comparison. And it made me question um, what we mean by metaphor. And, and, and it, I think those lines, even with your very logical system, they get a little bit, it seems like they get a little bit blurry because some, somehow metaf- metaphor seems to have some sort of sense of embodiment in Qumran, certainly. But I think of, I mean, I study Paul, so he does seem to be concerned with some of those same sorts of purity things when he talks about body as temple. I'm thinking of like First Corinthians, you know, six or, yeah, I just, I just thought, huh, this is, that's an interesting, it's an, but somehow, speaking, it's, yeah. somehow with Paul, it's almost like, the sanctity and the holiness and the purity system of the temple somehow maps onto the human body. Right. Once you stop visiting or once, once you become a Christian, somehow you have to, your physical holiness connects you to God and to all these believers. And so if you sleep with a prostitute, it's not just a sin against yourself or against God. It actually has somehow corporate implications for the yeah. body of Christ, which aren't quite the same as Qumran. I take your point, but it seems like that logic of like, we need to maintain this holy space as temple it seems like it's in some New Testament texts more than it is in, in others. And it's doing some similar sort of ethical, it's, it's controlling ethical or behavioral things for Christians. Yeah. And it's not individual because it, it operates as a corporate system. So if yeah. some member of that group violates the sanctity of that holiness, it affects you. Mm. Um, so what somebody else does kind of you know, sinfully actually has these implications for the entire community. Hmm. Um, and so in a way it's kind of like jubilees, right? If one, if one woman marries a non-Jewish man, or if, or if, or if you have some kind of intermarriage in one part of the Jewish community, it affects the entire Jewish community because then all of the children and all the intergenerational aspects of that have these ripples outwards. And so even though Paul is definitely very different in many ways from the author of Jubilees. You have these kind of thought processes and ways of approaching it that still seem to have these same structures. Hmm. Yeah. Lots to think about there, I think. Um, so then you draw these things together toward the end of the book, and then you identify these, um, well, you take David Horrell's three identifications and you say, this is the apex of the author's you know, re-socialization of identity. And those things are, you know, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, um, obviously, we can talk about them in Greek, but why is that set of terms significant? You've hinted at this before, um, and how do you see uh, your research uh, on these different metaphors kind of propping up what it means to be a new ethnicity? Mm. Well, those terms, two out of the three, I think, if I remember correctly, come out of Exodus. Mm. And so in Exodus, it's where God says, you know, you're my people. I've chosen you. I've brought you up out of this land. And so there's this theme of Exodus out of slavery into the promised land and God marking Israel as his own people. And this being kind of the defining moment of Israel's identity is being kind of saved by God to enter the promised land. And so in some way, the author of First Peter is appropriating those Exodus themes and applying them to First Peter and for Christians. And it seems to be basically giving them permission to say that all of this narrative and history of Israel is now your inheritance through Christ, that this whole story now becomes your story. You're, you're written in, you're written into the story. And so it's giving them this identity. And so there's a big, I think, unifying motivation here. So I see the audience of First Peter as being a very diverse group of people from all over Asia Minor potentially very different classes, slaves, non-slaves, maybe some, a few wealthy people, um, maybe some Jews as well. And, and they're very diverse, but now they're unified by having this shared history and this shared theology and the shared identity. So I see it as a way of bringing all of them together with a very exalted set of terms. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of Christians, I mean, we can't know for sure, but probably many, many of the early Christians were very poor. They were not from the upper echelons. There was always some from the upper echelons, but 
a lot of Christians were very poor slaves. They were from the mass of people who were kind of at the bottom of the social pyramid. And so for people who have basically nothing or were almost at a subsistence level and kind of teetering on the brink really of kind of starvation, poverty, it's actually giving them an, an identity that you, you can't, it can't be exalted. It's, it's almost the highest identity there is to say that you've been chosen by God and you're this royal priesthood and you're this elect family. I mean, I think that must have been massive to those people to kind of be given that type of status and identity, at least in Christ, when so much around them would have seen them as just kind of the dregs and the, this kind of social base that's kind of supported everyone above them. Yeah. And if we're, if you're to think forward, um, to like five years from now, what's your, what's your hope for this book in terms of its impact on the Academy, probably most likely the Academy since it's a monograph, but even in what you've just said, do you, how do you think it translates to the life of the church? So there's, there's kind of three big things that I'd like it to do within first Peter. I'd like it to make a contribution to the small group of people out there that really love first Peter that kind of study this and to make some contributions to the way that we read this letter. To the New Testament audience, I hope that the work that I've done on kind of metaphor is also a contribution as well to kind of provide tools to other New Testament scholars about how we can use metaphor in a really robust way to study texts and what it's contributing. But one of the things that I've become really interested in more recently is this contribution of ethnicity as well and what we mean by ethnicity and Christian ethnic identity, because there's been a lot of New Testament scholarship now on Ethnicity is an ancient category, but then there's also been a lot of contextual Bible study, as I referred to earlier, and people really bringing their ethnic background and their identity front and center into how they interpret the Bible, this very situational or kind of contextual-based biblical work. And so I'd like to say that somehow the work that I've done on First Peter, I think, has something to contribute to ethnic that kind of discourse. I'm not entirely sure how that should be kind of articulated, but somehow recognizing the similarity and difference about different types of ethnicity and how how somehow those have to be either compatible or different, or they're recognizing the difference in them while also recognizing that somehow there's these overarching categories. So I'm not entirely sure how to articulate it, but I think that there's something that First Peter brings to that discussion that could be very useful. Well, OnScript listeners, that's all the time we have for today. We've been speaking with um, Dr. Katie Marker on her new book, Divine Regeneration and Ethnic Identity in First Peter, Mapping Metaphors of Family, Race, and Nation, published by Cambridge University Press. Thanks so much, Katie, for joining us. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we'll see you next time. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.